Hello, and thanks for listening to Healthcare 360, a podcast by BILH. I'm Rob Fields. I'm a family doc and the chief clinical officer here at BILH. I have a fellow musician and friend, Matt Grimock, with me, fellow primary care physician here in the system. Uh, thanks for joining us, Matt. Yeah, thanks so much, Rob, for having me. This is exciting. As you said, I'm a musician. Uh, I also happen to be a primary care doctor as well and work within BILH, uh, taking care of patients as a clinician. And I consider that sort of my my core uh, and my first priority. And I also serve in a pretty large capacity as chief quality and safety officer for BILH primary care. I've been doing that for several years now. And I would say going way back, I've always been interested in taking care of people, but also taking care of populations. Mm -hmm. And as a doctor, I realized I can help people in tremendous ways, one-on-one -on -one and help families one by one. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to make a broader impact on how folks experience the health system and receive their care. Yeah. Uh, and that's what got me interested in this trajectory as a leader in quality and safety. Yeah. So happy to be here. And that's the main thing we were hoping to talk about today is quality in the context of not only you and myself in the past, although I'm not seeing patients actively anymore, but you as, as a primary care physician, and I think for lack of a better phrase, the burden of quality as, as defined these days. So there's that piece, you as a practitioner, but then you also as a leader in quality and safety and having to ask your colleagues, right? I wonder how is that often received, do you think, from your colleagues? Like the initiatives you're trying to get through, what's the first impression from folks that you encounter? Yeah, it's a really important question. And my first thought in relation to that question is that folks' understanding of quality, I think, varies a great deal across the board. And I've talked to many people over the years about their interests, their experience, you know, what do you think of this initiative or that idea mm -hmm. related to quality? And I've grown to appreciate that the definitions and the perceptions and the way people characterize quality differ mm -hmm. uh, quite significantly. And I think in relation to your question, defining quality and creating a shared purpose and a shared vision with my colleagues mm -hmm. as a leader in this space has been critical, I think. It's not sufficient, but it's an important aspect. Because if I jump to pitching an initiative, say, to a group of docs without that context, without understanding the why right. or the rationale, sometimes it doesn't go over as well. Right. It's not quite as meaningful, not quite as impactful. Right. And then I've found that it's sometimes harder to gain that traction yeah. with colleagues. We'll come back to a little bit about you know how they fit in the work of quality, how they being the primary care physicians mm -hmm. and the teams surrounding them fit in the work of quality in what is already a very busy, very constrained space. But still sticking with high level, how do you even define quality in, in the, well, in any setting, but specifically in the ambulatory setting, there's there's a patient perspective of what quality is. When someone yeah. asks the average person, what does quality care look like for you? It may or may not match what a physician might define quality or a nurse or anyone in the ambulatory space, how do you bridge that, right? Or how do you, do you have a philosophy around that or what yeah. that should look like? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, and I'm glad I actually brought up patients as important stakeholders in this equation because their perception of quality, again, varies um, from perhaps hours on the delivery side. So the way that I think about quality and I try to communicate this vision and this framework really is rooted in a couple of well-known frameworks. Mm -hmm. And I'll just describe those briefly. 
One is the Institute of Medicine's framework that they published, you know, a good couple of decades ago mm -hmm. in their sort of sentinel papers on this. And that's, you know, that quality is really broad in concept and breadth. And it includes safety, timeliness of care, effectiveness, efficiency, equity, patient-centeredness, you know, that steep sort of acronym. Mm -hmm. And I've always held to that when I think about quality mm -hmm. and strategy and, you know, initiatives and goals. The other framework that's been helpful for me is the IHI. What's now the quintuple aim has started as a triple aim and they've been adding it's layers. Growing. But the important fourth and fifth arms of that are population health and care team or clinician experience, mm -hmm. which ties in, I think, to your question a bit. So it's a nice framework because it wraps around how do care teams experience their work, mm -hmm. but also how do they experience quality? How do they mm -hmm. relate to it? and identify with it. So the way that I define it and create my vision around it as a leader really is rooted to a large degree in those types of frameworks. The other principle I'll just mention is that, and I try to talk about this a lot, is that quality is one of those things that has to be within the fabric of everything right. that everybody does. Right. From It's not a project. It's not a project. Yeah. It's not a project, and it's not only for certain roles. You know, in the ambulatory setting, you know, that includes anyone from medical assistants to nurses to physicians to non registration staff. To, yeah, registration staff. Yeah. In the hospital, it includes transporters, you know, folks mm -hmm. that move patients mm -hmm. from the room to the MRI suite. And so I think that's a really important principle to message. Yeah. And I strive to, you know, kind of work that into that definition of quality that I outlined. Yeah, no, that's great. Sticking with the patient for one second. I think if I would imagine that if you asked the vast majority of patients in any system and you said and use the framework that you described in regarding regarding equity, for example, and safe care, et cetera, they would agree with you that those would define quality for them. And then I think about the way my mother might choose or define yeah. quality in her mind or when it gets to the individual and making specific healthcare decisions. I'm gonna guess that the vast majority of healthcare decisions that an individual patient might make or which system or physician they choose to see is probably not based on looking up scores in regards to their performance on equity mm -hmm. standards, for example, or even their preventive cancer screening rates or surgical side infection rates, although maybe sometimes there, but I say most often not. Like the, those decisions aren't made by that. And I used to tell residents in the family medicine residency years ago, that I think particularly true in primary care, the biggest sort of marketing tool, the biggest way you can engage and grow your practice, honestly, is just to be a decent human being because the perception of quality is often based on those other like qualitative factors, yeah. like you know, on experience or engagement or trust with a physician. Do you agree with that statement? And how do you reconcile the true quantitative metrics that you described in standards on quality? And then when it gets down to like the brass tacks of how an individual makes healthcare decisions and their yeah. perception of quality, how do yeah. you reconcile that? Yeah, that's a really important tension, if you will, to reconcile mm -hmm. because there are all those quantitative metrics, many of which are by necessity because of external regulatory requirements, you know, mm -hmm. and others are there for good reason, you know, so that internally we can drive strategies forward and have success. By and large, like you're saying, patients don't really relate that well to those, or, or they don't really care <laughs> as much, care, or, yeah. or they're not as accessible. That, that information, frankly, isn't also always accessible. So this notion of just, we're all human, we're, you know, we all mm -hmm. are vulnerable, 
we take care of each other. It's a partnership between mm. I as a doctor and my patient. Mm -hmm. Shared decision making, you know, as an important principle kind of mm -hmm. comes into that. And I think that's another way to sort of create the shared vision and shared purpose and motivation around excelling in quality. Mm -hmm. when, when I'm talking to my provider colleagues, when I'm talking to any of my colleagues mm -hmm. or anyone, is really to go back to the patient as the center. And I mentioned that IHI framework. Mm -hmm. What I love that they've done since they've published that initial one and iterated on that is that there's a white paper from about five years ago that puts forth a new variation of that model, mm -hmm. of that steep, you know, mm -hmm. those, those components of quality, and puts the patient literally at the center of the graphic that they use to represent the mm -hmm. model. And I, and I just love that. I go back to that all the time because it highlights the same principles that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. you know, keeping people healthy, prevention, keeping people safe. But it puts it into that perspective of the patient. Right. You know, right, right. the way that I think of quality as a patient is I want my ex, my provider, my physician, my health system to keep me safe at all times, to help me stay well, to help me receive my care in a timely, meaningful way. Right. Right. So, yeah, I think that patient perspective is critical and important to bring out in addition to the more, you know, quantitative aspects of quality. Yeah, for sure. Part of what we're hinting at as we're, you know, talk some about the constraints and resources and some of those challenges, but oftentimes part of what we're talking about in terms of establishing that that trust with the patient, having that shared decision-making mm -hmm. sort of model, or when, especially when it comes to really complex decisions, requires time and space in the current delivery model to do that. And you and I both hear multiple times a day, maybe, that that time isn't supported. You know, we just don't have the time. We don't have protected time. We don't have individual patient encounter time to go through that process of shared decision-making, et cetera. How much do you think then the economic models of the current U.S. healthcare system make your job harder? And for that reason, and maybe others. Yeah, that's the elephant in the room, I would say. Mm -hmm. It makes it extremely challenging in many ways. When our model is based on fee-for-service and volume, for the most part, that makes it really challenging. Because it's hard to ask docs to see 25 patients in a day and also sit down mm -hmm. when they're talking and also do a nice shared decision-making conversation. So it becomes a time issue. It becomes a stress mm -hmm. issue. And I think patients feel that. Families feel that. So one solution, which is not an easy one, is to evolve that reimbursement model. Mm -hmm. And that's happening in various parts of the country and the world and different health systems, you know, are at different stages there. And in the meantime, there are workarounds, right. so to speak. You know, things like leveraging technology, mm -hmm. ex extending the, the notion of a patient encounter and office visit, I'm thinking in the ambulatory mm -hmm. setting, to not just when they're within the brick and mortar walls, but mm -hmm. before the visit, after the visit, between visits. Right. You know, how can we leverage an EHR platform to reach out to the patient before the visit and ask questions and actually engage them? Mm -hmm. And that doesn't really take any time from the physician, but it's impactful to the patient. You know, there's an initiative that I was involved with a handful of years ago called Our Notes, and that's an iteration on the open notes model. Uh -huh. And that's, you know, about transparency of the EHR with patients mm -hmm. and engaging them in ways that don't require as much time-intensive resources on behalf of the care team. 
And then also, I think I mentioned the sitting down thing in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, but I do think that's important, right? Because there's literature that supports certain tactics that impact patient perception of how well their care provider listens and engages them and communicates. And one of those is simply sitting instead of standing, right? Wow. Another one is trying not to interrupt a patient for, I think it's 18 seconds is the, is the number, which isn't a lot of time when you think about it. But it is a lot of time if we're not cognizant of that and how right. that might land with the patient if we right. are standing and hand on the doorknob and talking right. at the same time. So, you know, another tactic is the way the computer's set up, right? If my back is to my patient, right. they may think I didn't spend as much time with right. them as if I were like we are right, right now, right. face-to-face. So. Right. The design and workflow, even those simple things, right? It, you yeah. can do all the words can be the same, but those things are That's right. pretty fundamental. I'm sure, because it's happened to me throughout my career, that you get accused as the quality lead because you're also accountable for performance, right, on various contracts and relationships that yeah. we've got, whether it's with the state or the feds or with payers. You may get accused of being the clicky box person, you know, the person that makes me click all the boxes in the medical record system. Is that a fair, is that a fair judgment? <laughs> is, you know, is that, yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts around yeah. that? Like, are, I mean, I guess that's part of the role, but how, how do you reorient folks that sort of say, Matt, you're making me click too many, too many boxes? My initial response is just to empathize mm-hmm. because it is true. I mean, to some extent, <laughs> it's true. There are sure. boxes and radio buttons to click. Right. There are checklists to, to complete. And I take it a step further and try to, again, go back to that shared purpose and vision mm-hmm. and patient-centered model. Mm-hmm. I, I often w- might reference a family member of mine who's received care or you know, reference if it's your f- spouse or mother, father, mm-hmm. son, daughter receiving the care, you know, what would that mean to you in terms of high-quality care? Right. I think the payer contract performance piece is obviously a, a financial opportunity, but it also creates a challenge in terms of how we spin quality and how quality resonates with folks, especially in the primary care and ambulatory setting. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to be careful. I, in my position, try to be careful about how to communicate the importance of the initiatives that are part of the strategy to perform well mm-hmm. within those areas. Take diabetes and hypertension metrics, for example. And what I mean by that is to even if those contracts or those obligations are limited to a certain subset of our patient population that we care for, to make sure that we're not limiting our strategy and our approach and our vision to to just just those those patients. patients. So that all patient pair agnostic communication and leadership, I feel is really important. Because at the end of the day, if we do well for all patients, we'll do well on right. The contracts. contracts take care of themselves. Yeah. Right. Whereas the inverse is not necessarily true. Right. And I think that's important from an equity standpoint as well. Of course. Yeah. You alluded to this a little bit, but if we can dive in a little bit more on since so much of the burden around what is currently defined as ambulatory quality lies within primary care, it's not yeah. exclusive to that. So, you know, specialists and other folks that are listening, certainly there's a massive role for them as well. But the reality is that the vast majority of the responsibility for performance is driven within the primary care space. And we know about all the constraints. We had a guest in another episode. It was a friend of mine from the AAMC, the American Association of Medical Colleges. We talked a little bit about physician workforce and some of the challenges there. But what we know is that there aren't enough primary care physicians coming out, and the Mm -hmm. population is aging, so the demand is growing while the supply is decreasing. So to some degree, in order to 
continue to improve on lots of things, including our efforts on quality. We have to redesign some of the processes. If you think about some of the elements of primary care of the future that would help promote quality and safety in the ambulatory space and, and the, what the team looks like, or mm -hmm. what, what does that look like for you? Yeah, so I alluded to one aspect of this earlier, which is the leveraging technology. I do think there's a role for optimizing EHR integration into our processes, into our care of patients in a way that might automate certain things that mm -hmm. we don't have automated in a standardized way right now. So that would create more efficiency and less time required you know, by providers and teams. I also think that you may, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but redesigning the team and the way that we yeah. approach care of patients. This could probably apply to many different care settings, but certainly in primary care, mm -hmm. in which the physician or the APP clinician might still be at the center of that team from, from the care team's side of things. And then you build a different type of team around that, including you know, more team nurses. We can always use more team nurses. They're phenomenal colleagues and they play such a critical role. Mm -hmm. And things like community health workers and health coaches and mm -hmm. navigators you know, because there are a lot of things that you and I do in the exam room with patients right. that we don't necessarily, our training is not required to be able right. to accomplish certain tasks, right? And so I think collectively create more effective care, more efficient care and higher quality at the end of the day for the patient. And if you think about the quintuple aim, you create mm -hmm. better care team experience and that's better quality as well. Yeah. Matt, I know one of the projects that you're working on that has received a lot of recent attention, even from the IHI and a lot of opportunities nationally to showcase what you've done or what the, and you and the team have done, is the Ambulatory Safety Net. Can you talk a little bit about that project and how you see it sort of scaling and what an example it can set for other processes in the system? Yeah, I'm happy to. So this is a four-year grant-funded program. It's funded through CRICO, our malpractice insurer. And it's really about setting up a system so that we can help the patients who, by no fault of any one individual, have fallen through the cracks, so to speak, in terms of their potential diagnosis of cancer. So these are patients who have had a positive cancer screening test for colon, breast, lung, or prostate cancers, who have not had that recommended follow-up testing to determine whether or not mm -hmm. there actually is something there that we would want to know about. And I think it presents a really nice opportunity to adopt as BILH a well-known model in an ambulatory safety net and go through the exercise of designing, developing, and implementing something like that at scale system-wide, which is very complex, as, yeah. as everyone can imagine. The exercise of going through that, I think, will reap benefits in the future for us, whether it's related to this ambulatory safety net type of work or other quality and safety and patient experience type of work, because the principles and the structures and the partnerships that we're forging through this work will not go away. You know, those will remain in perpetuity, I believe. And then we can build upon that um, sort of incrementally with future work. So yeah. I'm really excited about yeah. it. You know, not just given the goals and the objectives and helping these patients and people, but what it means for our system and setting us up for more success going forward. And it sounds like as a great sort of pat on the back, you were recently invited to present at the 
IHI National Forum, right? Later, later yes, this is hot off the press just recently. Yeah, we were, so I, I, would, I co-presented um, this work with some CRICO colleagues and some colleagues from Ariadne Labs. Mm -hmm. Both been involved in the overall collaborative at the IHI Patient Safety Congress a couple months ago. And I thought, okay, I hope that went well, but <laughs> apparently it did go well because we were invited to uh, present at the IHI National Forum in December. So looking forward to that. Yeah, well, but congratulations. On thank that. you. So we are a young system. You know, we're four years old this year, haven't gone through a pandemic. And so I've asked different folks on the podcast, different leaders in the system, how our unique situation as a brand new, very complicated, large system makes their job different, unique. There's opportunities, challenges, et cetera. In the quality and safety space, as you're trying to build up a culture, a process, an infrastructure around driving performance, how has the newness affected that, do you think? And maybe also, where do you think the newness has created some positives for you in this work? Yeah, I think this is a, this is a great question, and it's a unique question at this point in time in history. And mm -hmm. uh, given that we are a new system and we're still in the tail, but we've been through a significant once-in-a-century pandemic. I'm going to start with a positive spin on this. Okay. I think we're actually better off because we went through a pandemic mm -hmm. as a young system mm -hmm. than we would have been four years in mm -hmm. otherwise in certain ways. By that, I mean... Not suggesting that the pandemic was a good thing. No, we're no. About silver it, linings. I'm not we're suggesting talking I want to do here. another one next year or anything like that. <laughs> we're talking but, silver linings. That's right. Silver lining because... From an integration standpoint and from a culture building standpoint and even from a process standpoint of standardizing protocols mm -hmm. and communication channels and structures and all of the things that we could spend hours talking about, everything that was accomplished by BILH through those couple of years. But a lot of that we can leverage now mm -hmm. to drive quality and safety, you know, whether it's advancing culture you know, leveraging the structures that have been put into place, mm -hmm. driving initiatives. You know, an example might be the BILH Ambulatory Safety Net Initiative. I know mm -hmm. you're familiar with that, in which, you know, primary care, population health, the performance network, analytics, specialty leaders and colleagues are all partnering together to, you know, prevent delayed diagnosis of cancer. And the fact that where we're at with that initiative in terms of integration and cross-functional, cross-discipline partnership standpoint, I think is more advantageous than it would have been without having gone through the pandemic that forced us to put yeah. all these put yeah. all these things into place. I mean, even just knowing, I imagine who the specialists are and the other colleagues are in other parts of the system, yeah, I imagine. That's right. That would have been harder, perhaps. As simple as that, you know, having been in meetings with mm -hmm. all of the CMOs mm -hmm. and the CNOs mm -hmm. and the operational leaders across the system, yeah. those meetings would not have taken place at quite a clip had we not right. had to do that yeah. for the pandemic. So so that's the positive spin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the challenge, I think, comes down to one word, which is burnout. Mm -hmm. And particularly around quality and safety work. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned the check boxes sort of adage. It's challenging sometimes to ask folks to do more or do something differently in terms of a workflow or a particular initiative, given the context of collective fatigue mm -hmm. and burnout. And, you know, everywhere, not just BILH, but everywhere we're seeing folks leave the profession and um, retire early or, you know, change, mm -hmm. their, mm -hmm. change their trajectory because of the pandemic. And sometimes it's been challenging to fit quality and safety into that context, into mm -hmm. that climate. 
and it goes back to what I'll underscore, which is, you know, this is all about taking care of patients, take care of each other yeah. as colleagues and yeah. as a health system so we can all thrive. And at the end of the day, that's what's most important. And it's not about box checking. It's not about only revenue opportunities. It's really about that high quality in the way that we define it. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today and talk about your work and both the opportunities, challenges, accomplishments, all of the above. But I really appreciate what you're doing. Thanks so much, Rob. It was a pleasure to be here today. Thanks. Awesome. And if folks have ideas for future podcasts, please feel free to leave comments on all of our uh, social media sites. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.